Hello, and thank you for joining Small Town Real Estate, the podcast that provides stories and advice from small town guys in the big world of real estate. My name is Chad, and with me, as always, I have Trent. Trent, how are you doing today, sir? Fantastic. Couldn't be any better. Couldn't be any better myself, uh, so I'm glad to hear you're doing the same. Um, today, we have with us um, Paul and Adam, the attorney brothers. They are going to talk with us um, a little bit about creative financing. What are you looking forward to most? Yeah, so I think um, you know, as people are watching Pace Morby videos and, and other content online, uh, they see a lot of people using creative financing tools or approaches uh, to get deals. So I think with Paul and Adam, you're kind of hearing it firsthand from some of the best guys um, you know, on how you can use these tools to get deals. So I'm super excited to get um, you know, in-depth, um, you know, I guess, education on you know these techniques and, and how you can use them you know getting deals yeah absolutely absolutely you know and i kind of mentioned it at the end of the previous episode but i'm just i'm really looking forward to because a lot of people say that they can't get into real estate because they don't you know maybe they don't have good credit or they don't have a lot of funds up front but they don't understand there's a lot of different ways you can you know uh create a creatively finance a real estate deal without using the bank's money so mm-hmm. Looking forward to that. So with that being said, let's go ahead and jump into our conversation with Paul and Adam. All right. Uh, today we have with us the bro- the attorney brothers, Paul and Adam Vincent. Paul's been on the show before. Adam, appreciate you coming on. But uh, for those hey. who may not have caught the episode, Paul, Adam, do you guys care to give a little rundown of you know who you are, what you do, that type of stuff, so we can uh, let the viewers know what uh, what kind of background you guys have? Sure, Adam, you want to do it or you want me to? All right, sure. Yes, we do. Hey, I'm Adam. Uh, <laughs> he likes that talking. Guy is Paul. We're brothers. Uh, grew up in Northeast Ohio. Live, still live in Northeast Ohio. Paul's up in Cleveland. I'm in the Akron area. Um, we've been law partners for six or seven years, I guess it has Something been. Uh, had some work in another, another firm before that, but uh, we've focused in recent years uh, uh, on real estate uh, transactions and people raising money um through private offerings and helping people with closings uh creative financing stuff so all uh real estate things and then obviously along with that is is the formation so uh business corporate law stuff and uh help people also with uh future uh estate planning items so those are the three things we spend most of our time on um and uh yeah i think anything else to add there paul no, no, not really. You know, we spend a lot of time um, hopefully educating people on the internet, you know, with some free stuff. And then we have a, a group too. But um, yeah, no, our our firm mainly focuses on entrepreneurial pursuits of folks, you know, and a lot of them, I'd say 80% of them uh, focus primarily on real estate. We do, have a, we do have a decent chunk of business acquisitions and sales, but the great majority of our stuff is is real estate related. That's awesome. That's awesome. So basically, uh, what I wanted to do today is you guys obviously have um, a lot, a large clientele, and you guys have helped a number of people with real estate, different real estate deals, and helped them structure deals without using money from the bank, um, which is obviously an attractive thing right now with rising interest rates and things like that. So we just wanted to take some time with you today and talk about basically some different creative financing tools that are out there that a lot of people might not be aware of. Because, I mean, you hear it all the time. People think they can't, you know, get into real estate because they don't have any money of their own. But there's obviously tons of ways, to diff- different ways to do it. 
I know one of the biggest ways that you guys are always talking about is syndication. And I know it's kind of hard to sum it up, but can you guys kind of break down, you know, what is syndication, what it is, um, you know, how to utilize it, that type of stuff? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So uh, syndication is nothing but stacking up other people's money to pay for something that you can't otherwise afford yourself. So um, similar to, you know, our clients all the time are buying apartment complexes that are not going to pay for the cash to close necessary with the with the bank's loan. So what they're going to do is they're going to get investors. They're going to sell equity of the LLC that's going to be the ultimate owner of that apartment complex. And they're going to sell pieces of that LLC off membership interest to people with money. Uh, they, they hopefully will raise enough money to close the loan, and then they're going to hopefully add value to it and, 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 and eventually return some, if not all, of that capital contribution to those investing members. So that's indication. And uh, one analogy that I think is helpful for people is like, hey, if you're going to fly to Tampa to get out of this negative degree weather of Ohio, you're obviously not going to be able to fly down there on your own. So you and 250 other passengers are going to stack your money together to pay for this flight from Southwest to fly down there. So that, that, that analogy is kind of the, the same idea. You're, you're, you're using other people's money uh, in the pursuit of, of some other purpose. Okay. In addition to syndication, what are some other creative financing tools that you guys see a lot of your clients utilizing right now? Yeah. Yeah. So there's really two two chances to to use it. It depends if you're an owner or if you're a a buyer. So on the acquisition side, there's a couple ways, and on the disposition side, there's a couple things to use. And Adam, which one do you want to start with? Uh, um, well, uh, how about land contract? You want to start with that one? Yeah, go ahead. Land installment contract. Other states they call it contracts for deeds. Um, one important thing about seller financing, creative stuff. It, the important thing is that people familiarize themselves with what, what they're allowed to do in their state and what the different things are. What ends up happening is people come kind of create um, a deal that's kind of a hybrid and might get them into some hot water. The version of that is when you see rent to own in Ohio, um, I know you guys are down there, rent to own in Ohio is either a land contract or it's a lease where you buy an option. Um, and and the two lease with an option is is two separate agreements. What happens in Ohio a lot is uh, landlords, whether purposely or not, not necessarily bad intentions, but they they essentially create a, a land contract when they think they're doing a lease with an option. Um, and and so a land installment contract, to go back, is, is where the owner still is going to own it, but they're going to allow the buyer to buy it in installment payments. And in Ohio, the rule is uh, that under 20%, if that person stops making payment, it's essentially treated as an eviction. Owner still owns it. Um, buyer has has moved in. They've treated it like their own property. They've maintained it. Um, but then if they fall off with payments and an owner wants to, to take them to court to get possession back of that property, they essentially do an eviction. But if, it's, if they've reached 20% of that purchase price in, of equity in the property, the owner then has to do essentially a, a, a foreclosure um, rather than a forfeiture, they do a foreclosure. That way, if uh, if the buyer has has earned some equity, twenty percent is just the number that the the legislatures came up with. They get some credit for that, hopefully at at foreclosure, so that they're not just walking away from a property where they put a bunch of money in and you know are harmed. So it's a little bit of a balance where, in in fairness, the the buyer consumer 
purchaser can can be protected in some ways there by by requiring that if it's more than twenty percent, they get a little bit of equity at sale if if the sales price allows it um, at, at share of sale. But land contracts a, a simple one where it says an owner's name. You have this contract. You have a number of years. You might have a balloon payment down. You know, five, ten years down the road, there might be a balloon payment where they're like, "Hey, pay this much for this number of years, then pay me off." Whether it's through financing or however you're able to do that in five or ten years, and that's a good way to do it because it allows a few things to happen. You don't have to have a bank involved for, for lending. Um, you can do this in commercial real estate. Uh, you could decide that the eventual purchase price down the road is one that the seller wants, but that doesn't make sense right now for buyer. So sometimes that gives you a little bit of of wiggle room and allows people to reach the same one. But land installment contract is just an agreement between owner and seller where they are paid in installments and seller takes over the property as though they're an owner, essentially. You can negotiate some of the terms and decide what you know who's responsible for what, but generally you essentially step in as though you're an owner, although you aren't on title. Uh, how's that, How's that, Paul? What I forget on land contracts. Yeah, that's good. And, and the important thing to remember is a land contract is both good on the acquisition side and the disposition side. So that's why I think people need to uh, kick around in in understanding kind of the tool belt. Which side of the of the deal are you going to be on? For most people, they're on the acquisition side, right? They're still trying to accumulate a portfolio and trying to come up with creative ways um, to take stuff down. And that's why we think it's important to understand some of these things because the more you understand about various ways to take down stuff, whether it be land contract or subject to uh, for the acquisition side of things, the easier it is to talk to sellers who might have a problem and need to move this move this property or, you know, because everyone always focuses on, well, it, you need a distressed situation, right? If it's the distress may not be like, you know, the house is on fire sort of thing, like a divorce or a death or something like that, but it might just be someone that's older. And if it's an old timer that wants to make sure you actually know what you're doing, they want some security. And that kind of goes back security to get the asset back if you suck. So a land contract is really helpful with that because they're still on title. It's really easy to kick you out if you're not very good uh, for a for a pretty decent amount of time. If you if you suck within that twenty percent of principal pay down um, that the land contract or have a hard time, you just have a hard time making payments. You're a wonderful yeah, right. person. Don't necessarily suck. <laughs> <laughs> well, you suck at owning their property. Um, and if that's the case, if you're an old timer, you just don't want this property because it feels like a problem. Then you can say, hey, look, if I'm not good at my job, you can essentially evict me. I'll be totally out of the deal um, if I don't keep up my side of the bargain for the X number of years it takes for me to get to that 20%. So um, I think land contracts are a really cool tool. It's simple to put together. It's just a purchase agreement and then a you know five to 10 page legal doc that gets recorded against the property. And it's really good for, for properties that are free and clear. It's even okay for properties that have a lien already on it, but there's a little risk on the on a acceleration of that mortgage because uh, it because it serves essentially as a second, but that's a cool one, um, and it's really good if you're a seller because like like I said, like Adam was talking about it, it it can kick people out if they're not doing their job a lot faster than foreclosure. So I've I've heard people have different takes on this. So if someone has a mortgage or a lien with a financial institution, are you are they still able to do a seller finance deal with somebody? Um, you know, although they have that mortgage with someone else. Yeah, they can. Happens all the time. But there's obviously every everybody should be on the same page that there is some risk there. So if it's that person that's selling the property under seller financing, you know, let's say they have a hundred thousand dollar mortgage on their property still. Um, the big concern is the bank finding out that there's a new owner 
but banks are in the in the business of making money for the money they lent some period of time ago. They're not in the they're not in the business of checking ownership often. So just make sure that both sides know that this could accelerate. And what do we do if this does accelerate? Or we hear from the bank of who the hell is this new person? Right. If that's the case, then you need to have a plan. Um, but it happens um, in our firm. We've done lots and lots and lots of these. We've never had anybody um, get snooped after by the by the bank on the residential side. On the on the commercial side, that is a, that's a different story. Those are usually bigger chunks of money. If it's uh, a federally backed loan, like a Fannie or Freddie loan, they do know who owns it. They do look at that stuff. They get triggers when uh, stuff transfers. Um, so you have to be really careful on the commercial side. On the residential side, you need to be careful, but not as careful. But you need to make sure that everybody understands if this goes poorly, what happens? How do we get a result? And that sort of thing. Yeah. And, and I think, like you said, Paul, commercial, it's more often a special type of lending that that does monitor it, whereas residential doesn't, I don't think as much, but there are some special products that might, that may, might be more stringent, um, you know, because maybe the owner got uh, a special treatment because of their status or their situation. Um, and so that might be one where it has to be an owner, uh, the same owner, you know, own, owning it. So yeah, it's a little bit of risk. Uh, but like Paul said, um, a lot of times it's, it's one that people, people find to be worthwhile. Yep. And I, you, Adam was talking about earlier, I found myself in that exact same scenario, had a house that I bought pre COVID and it, it set for a little while, extremely cheap, like $8,500 somewhere in there. And, uh, I had, <clears throat> I had the neighbor, you know, she was reaching out to me. She said, Hey, you know, we want to take a look at the house cause I was wanting to sell it. And they came over and the house was not in livable condition. And she came over her and her grandson. She said, we absolutely love this house. We, we have to have this house. And, yeah. and I was like, I, I just want to make sure that you are looking at the same house that I'm looking at. Are you blind? You know. Yeah. So we, you know, I, I made sure I was like, you're sure this is what you want to do. She said, yeah, but we don't have the money up front to do it. And I said, well, I'll sell her finance it to you. Um, and she said, okay, well, I'm, she was using some sort of um, local program that she was going to pull, you know, money from for like a down payment. And I said, that's, that's fine. And, you know, so we got the terms all ironed out. Um, and I think the purchase price was like 10,000 or something like that. And she was going to pay it over a couple of years and then be done with it. So the issue I ran into, because I didn't do my homework, uh, she had already paid with the down payment 20% over 20% of, you know, what the total purchase price was, she paid for one month and then goes to me, never heard from her. You oh, know? So yeah, never heard anything, reached out to uh, an attorney in the area and gave her the details. And she said, you're going to have to go through a foreclosure because she's already paid 20% of, you know, what the purchase price is. Yeah. So I did not know that going in. So for anybody that um, is looking to do any seller financing, you know, what Adam just, Adam and Paul just covered is, is gold. So you definitely want to make sure you do your homework. Yeah, I was, I was actually going to mention that down payment issue. We've mentioned that, uh, in our, our group before is like, you know, you thought, oh, why not, I'll, you know, why not take more at upfront, whatever she's getting closer to buying it. Yes. But that's the one issue is, yeah, you don't, you don't have that, that period. And especially, I mean, that, $10,000 properties aren't going to be that common. So it's, well, it's it, like, what would get this, to 20% this... usually takes years, but yeah. Well, that, you know, it's fascinating. It's like this lady is living in in pretty much an uninhabitable home, right? So it's like yeah. you took she what'd she do? Steal two thousand bucks from this program? I mean, is she even living there? You know, um, I, not yeah, sure what the play is there, but 
Yeah, that's too bad. I, I was very surprised because they were adamant to move. They had they we went over a plan what they were going to do with the house with the drywall and the electric and getting the roof replaced. And she had had a boy. I it was she went over and I said, listen, if it's what you guys really want to do, you know, I'll I'll try to help you and make it work. Yeah. But yeah, it's a bummer. So we we always advise folks to try to aim right around ten percent down payment. You know, the closer you can get to ten percent, the better because at least you get some of that money up front. And if you're doing an amortization of, I think we saw that calculation last night, right, Adam? If you do, if yeah, you do it amortized over 30 years, because you want to give them um, a, a longer, you know, a lower, a lower payment, they don't pay to get to that 20% mark for I think seven years and three months. Yeah. Or something like that. So uh, if yeah. you take 10, if you're doing a land contract, try to be close to 10. If you want to get a little closer to 20, that's fine too. You want more upfront money, um, but if you stick around 10%, they're going to have to prove concept for sure in seven years, right? If they've done it for seven years, obviously things happen. People lose their home after seven or 10 years, but they're, they're, they've done a good job. And if they paid you for six and a half years, you know, I mean, that that's, that's great. And if you have to, yeah, and it's worthwhile by that point, right? It's the ghosting yeah. after a month or two or four, you know, is, is when it's <laughs> yeah a, a bit of a headache. Um, but yeah. Well, in that ghosting situation, it's like Adam and I don't do a ton of deals. You know, we have a couple multifamilies, but if you do tons of deals, at some point, everyone gets some sort of weird thing like that. Um, yeah. Sure. I've had a couple of really weird situations where someone applied on behalf of somebody else. They even faked um, that they were that person, drove like a fancy car and all this stuff, and the person was actually a felon because uh, this person <laughs> this person didn't do didn't do that one little twenty five dollar uh, background check. Um, cause they were just like, Oh, this person's a nurse. Look, they drive a BMW and they find out, they found out that the true person is a felon, uh, on some sort of actually real estate scheme. They were doing the, uh, the deed transfers, uh, fraudulent deed transfers. So reading things they didn't know. Is that the one? Yeah. Yeah. How about that? Yeah. So that. unfortunately you run into that, but yeah. Uh, so that's a, that's a good one laying contract. Yeah. And just, you know, and, and different, Ohio's twenty percent, but obviously other states uh, have their own their own and, laws. But just yeah, it's, worth, I, it's worth doing the footwork, figuring that out. Yeah, and I think the other, in in context of, I think what's probably coming uh, that we'll hear more about in the news is the defaults across the country. Um, subject to is the next uh, probably easiest thing for acquisition. It, it's it's a little harder because explanation is tough, right? You have to explain to the seller like, hey. I'm going to take over your payments and, and and all that, but that's probably the next best acquisition model for um, taking down properties is subject to. So you're buying it just like we talked about a little earlier. Like, hey, if there's already financing on it, what can we do? And and how that you know in a in a in a fast uh, in a fast way of explaining it is you take over the debt payments, you take title to uh, most subject tos, you take title to the property, and then you take over payments, and then you do whatever you want with the property. You either rent it out to somebody else. Or you do uh, short-term rentals with it, or, or or whatever you know, kind of your strategy is. But that's probably the most common other way of buying stuff is subject to. So it was subject to because I I'm super curious about it because it is one of those things where I, I've read different articles and you know get different takes for different things you read. So is it you can actually assume the mortgage and then there's a I, I, one of the things I was reading, there was two ways you could do it with a subject to, you could assume the mortgage, which would give you more liability, or you just pay it off the subject to the mortgage that's existing. Is that, is that correct? Or is that? Well, so you actually don't, that you, you explain to the seller that the debt stays with them, the debt stays on the property. So that's, that's really it. 
uh, they sign off on that. You take over title and then you just, you know, you have some other backend stuff to worry about like insurance and things like that. But yeah, essentially you're just now on title and you're, your your pitch to these folks is, hey, um, I understand that a foreclosure has started or that someone's filed a Liz pendants, which is the bank saying, hey, everybody, this thing's in default. If that's the case, you're going to catch up their payments and keep them out of foreclosure and and hopefully save their credit score so they can do something else uh, down the road. But the debt actually stays with the seller and uh, you're just the person running the property now. With um with the subject too, Paul and Adam, you guys or the buyer and seller run that risk again with the bank too, right? With the transferring of yep people. I mean, you could, they can technically call for that whole amount of money if they want to, correct? Yeah, transferring interest is a is a default provision in every mortgage. So uh, you'll you'll have to uh, you have to explain that everybody's got to be on the same page that that is a real risk. Yeah. Hey, I just sent the shoe, Paul. Remember we made the subject two shoes? Uh, oh I believe gosh, you really? called for the wooden shoes. Uh, we posted that. Anyway, <laughs> if you guys want to share that, that's yes. our, little, our dumb little graphics. <laughs> How do we share that? I, I don't know if you guys have gotten into dumb graphics, but we sure have. Um, so anyway, I, I sent it by chat. If Dude, chat, I, when oh, did we use this? When did we do Like this? a month ago. Dude, um, I'm sharing two. that right after this is over. What a great memory. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, so, yeah, no, I, uh, I was going to mention, you mentioned Novation, Paul, because that's where you're stepping into the shoes in both senses, both. Yeah, Novation is another cool way. Yeah. Novation is when is ownership and assuming the loan and, and you're taking and, and the lender's good with it. So there's three parties involved in that agreement, um, whereas taking it subject to you kind of leave the, the lender out of it. Right. So that's one way to think about it is you're taking yeah, so, responsibilities. So so people who do a lot of wholesaling, right? They they assign the contract interest in uh, that deal. On a novation, there's actually a seller and a buyer and then a new buyer. But in a novation, you're, you're actually going and, and finding someone to pay and then you're getting replaced entirely, but you're getting paid that that chunk of money like an assignment. So, but you're 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 dodging all the risks. So on an assignment, if that end buyer doesn't buy, you're on the hook, right? That seller could sue you, the wholesaler. On an ovation, it's like the same thing, but you're actually transferring everything to that end buyer, including liability, and then you're hopefully making a spread. And an ovation is really good for flipping properties. So um I actually just tried two yesterday, but these these realtors are really impressive and on I'm reading my message and ignoring me. And I'm not even saying anything complicated. I'm just like, hey, I'm an investor. I'd like to look at the property. Don't even write me back. <laughs> but, the, but the plan on that is, is I buy it through Novation to the seller. Paul is under contract with the seller. But then in our contract, the seller agrees that I'm going to sell it to an end buyer uh, down the road after I do something. And my something is going to be adding, you know, 30, 40, 50 K to the property and then reselling it for, for, and then getting the spread. And then I'm getting my 30 or 40 back because that's a lien on the property. So Novation's really good for that. If you're trying to flip properties, maybe they've sat on the market, but you don't want to own them. This is a way of doing it. You come in, you invest some capital, and then you resell it hopefully for a spread and your money gets paid back. And then you don't have to worry about taking the other 150,000 down, you know, but if a property is not selling, hopefully your money that adds to the property, uh, will get it there. Yeah. So, yes, yeah, so I think that's the important thing, though, for anybody listening or, or out there doing these things is just like when you're when you're trying to figure out which one you want to uh, pursue, 
And what your state allows is like, are you stepping into both shoes, ownership and also the debt responsibility? Because on subject two, um, technically you're not taking on that responsibility personally, uh, directly. You're leaving it in that in that uh, borrower's name, but you're taking title. So, so you know, that's the important thing is to to recognize that that's a big distinction between the different types of creative uh, financing there. So, yeah. Uh, what other one do we want to talk about? Anything else, Paul? Well, one of the uh, things I want to okay. ask so yeah. you, so you're looking at, say you have a deal and you're, you're kind of going over your options about how you, you can finance this thing. So um, I think it was Pace Morby I was watching. He was, he said, basically I was going down through the list. Like I uh, couldn't sell or finance it. It wasn't a good subject too, but he said innovation, you know, we could go that route. So what would be, I guess, trying to figure out how I want to phrase this question. What would be like um, a kicker in a deal where it'd be like, okay, seller finance, um, you know, subject, yep. those aren't going to work, but innovation would be good for us in this instance. So what would, what would be a kicker? So that, so that would be, let's say somebody wants to sell their house for 250, but the markets, all the offers are like 200, right? The, the novation value is that I could, I could maybe get you your value, but I have to, put in my own capital. I need to get my capital back and then I need to make money for you to get to yours. So if it's a, you know, let's say it's a seller wants 250, but if they put in 50, it'd be worth 350 or something like that. Right. But right now it's a dump because it's, you know, it's worth 210, but they can't take 210. There's a mortgage on it or whatever it is. They want to make more money. On it. So an ovation is, Hey, I'll come in. I'll agree to pay you your 250, but I can't pay it now. I'm going to pay it after I add the value. Um, the other way to do that is you, you could add a little sweetener at the end. Let's say that you you add 30, 40, 50,000 to the property and you're going to make 80 or something or 50 or whatever it is. You could say, hey, I'll give you 10% of the net proceeds after I get my capital back. That's another kind of creative way. And it gives them a reason to sit on the deal for 90 days or 120 days for you to add value to it and relist it. The other neat thing for that is you tell the listing agent uh, on your first kind of correspondence with them and say, hey, I got this idea for your property, the property, uh, the, the relisting of it obviously includes you. You'd be the one to relist it. So that agent is also incentivized too, because they're like, I'm, I may never get paid on this thing. My client may be pissed at me in another two weeks and fire me from the job. But you can say, hey, listing agent, I'm going to list it with you when I put it back on the market for 350 or whatever. So you not, don't get just this sale. You get a second one in six months, right? At a higher price. Right. Yep. And yep. it'll hopefully actually sell. Then you got to then you got somebody working on your behalf, that agent. Yeah. <laughs> right? gonna... Oh, and, and that's and and if you guys ever go after creative deals, if you lead first with I want to make sure you get paid under this scenario, you'll get six percent of the thing instead of, you know, if they relist it, they wouldn't get six percent. But if you have some creative thing where you're like, hey, I'll pay your commission if we take it down this way. I mean, you want the agents to be your sidekick uh, in pushing the deal through. So, and they do do that a lot on the commercial side too. You create, you come up with creative stuff on the commercial side. We've seen, we've seen agents who get their mind around it and then they can help convince the seller. It's an idea worth kicking around. Yeah, actually we, Phil, Phil Brooks, we talked to him not too long ago and he was saying that he was talking to, uh, to a seller in Arkansas somewhere and he had, made a relationship with a broker down there and she had actually yeah, called the I just seller. talked to that chick. She's, she's real nice and she's really good. She has a ton of deals. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. He was, so that's a good example. It's pretty cool. Yeah. And she's a, she's a hustler. He found a good one. So yeah, and I, we're actually helping him with that deal. Cool. Sorry, Chad, was, what were you going to say? No, you're fine. I was going to say, so 
with all these different techniques we've talked about, Paul and Adam, if I am a seller uh, of a house and I've got all these different, you know, people pitching me these different land contracts or seller financing or whatever, other than the bank finding out there might be a transfer of ownership, what other risks do I run um, by, you know, accepting a seller finance or a land contract, those types of things? Uh, if you know the, the big thing in, is that you're working you're working together with this potential buyer and the uh, like Trent experienced if you're if if it's not a clean sale then there's a future between or still a relationship between you and you and buyer uh, and if they don't play along then you have to you know figure out figure out your your next steps or what your remedy is to take back the property or that sort of thing so. I mean, that's really what it comes down to is obviously there's there's a there's a timeline where you're going to be working together and you're you do you do have some uh, risk and liability based on, you know, what that what that potential buyer is uh, able to do. So, again, this is something where, you you know, you 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 should do underwriting. You should always do seller financing with only with people who are able to actually do it. They have a reliable job. They just aren't able to get the financing or they just want to go this route. Either way, make sure that it's not one of these situations where you're just diving right in. Um, that's why it gets a little bit of a bad rap is some some landlords historically have taken advantage of the hope of home ownership for people who can't own a home. And they do this, you know, rent to own or, or whatever it is that that kind of dangles home ownership out there. And then they get a option fee or they get a tenant because they just did that and, and didn't do any any work bothering to underwrite and, and figure out whether or not this is really a good faith deal. So um, th that's really the risk though, is that ongoing relationship and the likelihood that things are going to go as planned. Um, any other things, Paul, you want to talk about there? Yeah, no, dude, the, the biggest risk for a seller is having more of a pain in the butt than they wanted, right? Like people are selling stuff for some reason. Uh, they want to make money is the best case scenario, but more often than not, it's a pain in the butt. They don't want it. Um, the big risk is somehow making it even worse for themselves by selling something to somebody that doesn't do their job. So I think that's that's probably the biggest risk. Um, you know, getting your note called is obviously a complication, but, you know, it can get resolved. If it's a decent property, you can sell it and get out of it. So. Sure. And then on the flip side of that, what would be like some positives, obviously, because, you know, you hear a lot of people who pitch seller financing deals and it sounds like a lot of those times you'll end up as a seller, you'll end up with a lot more money than you would if someone just gave you a flat cash offer one in and out. What, I mean, what are the true positives of me, you know, doing a land contract or a seller financing or that type of thing? If I'm, if I'm a seller. Yeah. Well, becoming the bank um, also gets you that interest, right? So, so, the cash flow, if things go as planned, uh, the cash flow doesn't end. So you, as a as a seller, one of the nice things is is you unload the headache and the day to day operations, but you still are are um, getting some cash flow out of it and eventually uh, getting that lump sum down the road. Um, so I think that's a big thing too. Is that um, it's not just going to be a one time lump sum sale. Sometimes it it fits better for sellers to have that uh, payment. And especially if you figure out an arrangement where it's like, say, oh, it's interest only for the next six months. It doesn't even eat it, eat into the principal um, of the eventual sale or something along those lines. 
or or just standard you know, principal and interest. They're still getting more money out of that property over time as as the lender on the deal. And that that is appealing to people because, you know, if this has been uh, their source of income for a long time, then the idea that they're just going to get one lump sum and then nothing else is going to come out of that ownership that's, you know, been been uh, paying them money for decades sometimes the seller financing is a way to kind of transition into to there and still be getting more cash generated out of the property. Uh, what else, Paul, you got anything else? To add well, there? I'm going to pull up the deal structure course from week three and just run through, <laughs> run right. through the other That's things. Right. We, actually, we actually talked about this last night um, because it's, you know, it's just another thing to sell. And what we're going to do is we're going to put it, we're just going to formalize it, add a few more details to each of the kind of bullet points, but it's a cool thing that you guys could submit to your, potential sellers, right? Along with your offer, uh, just telling them the couple of reasons why and a couple other reasons, you know, and they're not rocket science, but they're, you know, kind of like what you said, Chad, you can have likely a higher sales price if you're a seller, because you don't have to worry about the bank, the bank's appraisal, that sort of thing. Um, that's a huge one. Uh, kind of going back to the installment sales, which is just an IRA designation for a, for a transaction, which allows for a seller to spread out the capital lien on that. Yeah. Um, so if, if, if it's not your primary residence, uh, you're going to have to worry about a capital gain if it's increased in value over a period of time. So if you sell it, any amount of years you sell it, let's say it's a hundred thousand dollar property. If you sold it, if there was a, if it was a $50,000 property, and this is just basic math, there's all sorts of other considerations for capital gains, but for simple math sake, let's say you bought it for 50,000. Now you're selling it for 150,000. You have a hundred thousand dollar capital gain. If you sell that capital gain over, or if you sell that property under seller financing in 10 years, that $100,000 capital gain gets gets chunked up into $10,000 capital gains over that period of time. And if you're a 20% a capital gain person, then you're only, then you're only paying $2,000 of capital gain every year instead of $20,000 that very first year. So it can really be a, a cool uh, incentive for tax uh, planning purposes for a seller. And you can kind of talk to them a little bit about that. Um, obviously don't tell them you're their CPA, but have them talk to their CPA about it. But I think that's a really important thing. The other thing is, there's no need for an appraisal. As, as I'm sure you guys know, appraisals can make or break uh, deals, overcomplicate deals. They seem so arbitrary, uh, at least they have for the last couple of years. And, and it's tough, but it's something that every every traditional sale has to deal with. Um, and, and lastly, you can actually hit a targeted close date when you do seller financing because there's not this bank concern, this bank underwriting concern, this appraisal concern that always seems to be delayed and, and, and wait until the last minute. And I think that last minute stuff that appraisers are doing, they always err on the side of caution. So maybe if they had a little more time, the, the value of the thing could have gone up X percent. But since they're kind of rushing, they're like, well, you know, it could be worth 150000 but I hate to be really far off and ruin the deal in my relationship with the bank. So I'll say it's worth 128. Um, so getting out of that appraisal and actually hitting targeted close dates is, I, I think is a really another impressive reason why. Yep. No, and I think, I think the big thing on stellar financing, if you're in the value of ad space, so Paul mentioned a, a residential example earlier where like, Oh, there's this house that's not in good condition. Everybody's offering 200,000 seller wants 250. Um, but it only gets to 350 if we put money into it. So, so in other words, we need that value add before that person can get the money that that owner can get the money they want. 
same thing for what, what what happens in commercial, right? People have apartment buildings. They want a certain number. It's never going to appraise enough uh, for for bank financing to to get them the number and the lending that that buyer needs without having to bring a huge pile of cash that they don't have and then have to give away all the company to investors because they need a huge stack of cash, not just a down payment, usual down payment. They need an even bigger stack because the appraisal won't come back uh, to what they need. So in other words, creative, the seller financing is really great for when you need value add to, to get the value of the property. The property has the bones and the potential for, for the value uh, that all the parties want, but it's not there right now. The appraisal is the thing in the way between the two the two points, the current value and the ARV, the after renovation value. The thing in the way right now is the appraisal of the current value. And so what seller financing does is it gets rid of that that hurdle and it allows the parties to add value. And then down the road, once it's been it's been uh, its value has been lifted up through renovation, through rents, through you know getting uh, getting the tenants and the the um, occupancy number up. Um, parties can get to what they, what everybody went, wants and have a uh, win, 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 win uh, situation. Where we all win. I mean, I'm sold. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's the big thing is seller financing can delay that can, can be the, the, the missing piece to get everybody on the same page there. Um, but bank financing and, and appraisals get in the way a lot of times there. Yeah. I've seen that firsthand. Yep. Yeah. Especially when you're flipping properties, you know, it's worth more. Um, I had an FHA deal that I, I think our our final offer on a flip was like seventy thousand more than we had got to sell it for or something. Wasn't it some crazy or thirty thousand more than it appraised for Adam or something? Uh, it was thirty or forty you, when we did the flip and the the eventual buyer's offer was yeah. It, yeah. And it's funny, like I you know people people think I know everything. I certainly don't, and I know that I don't know everything. But one thing I didn't know was the FHA kind of appraisal process and all that because I don't. That was my very first flip, but my agent never told me anything about the risk of an FHA deal, right? I would have never taken an FHA deal if I knew that it had to appraise for an X amount and, and nothing more than that could could be um, financed. They couldn't even bring the cash to the deal like they wanted to. So whatever. Um, there's all sorts of funny little nuances out there. Yeah, you live and learn. Lesson learned, <laughs> yeah. So in addition to some of the seller financing tools we've talked about, is there anything else that you guys can think of? I know I've heard different things about self-directed IRAs, you know, utilizing those, but is there anything else maybe you guys can think of that you're seeing people use right now? Uh, I think self-directed IRAs are, are cool because it's, you know, if you're a wholesaler, that's a really neat uh, way to get growth in that self-directed IRA really quickly. Uh, Adam and I have kicked around doing it forever. We just haven't done it, but if you wholesale, if you take something down in your self-directed IRA as the buyer, and then you assign it to somebody else for $10,000, um, you can add all of that into your self-direct, all that assignment fee in your self-directed IRA. So, I mean, you can grow these things up really, 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 really quickly. So that's kind of a cool thing. Um, as far as creative ways of taking stuff down, I mean, people always want to keep the anonymity uh, so they're, they're talking about land trusts and stuff. I don't really like those. I think it complicates things. Um, I think if you buy things in an LLC, you can keep it uh, private where nobody knows who the owner is. Um, I think the best probably advice is add to your network. Uh, getting deals and things are fine, but I think you should spend as much time growing your kind of center of influence as anything else. Because if you have a network you can rely on uh, for advice or capital or stuff like that, like there's no deal you can't 
take down. So um, the people that I think have the best network do do uh, do the best too. So um, spend as much time kind of improving that part of your of your business, then I, I think you'll be you'll be better off than learning all these kind of weird seller financing strategies you know yeah and practice being the problem solver right because these seller financing deals are all ones that are a little sticky or a little confusing and that that um scares away you know a big portion of the population right so if you get good at at kind of thinking about these things and understanding them and seeing how they can fit into certain scenarios that's that's important um i don't think we talked about it's obviously the most traditional well, not necessarily, but it's it's a traditional uh, version is there's a land contract for true seller financing. And then there's obviously just selling it and holding a note, right? So that's that's the one most people are familiar with. But I just wanted to mention that those are the really the two um, seller financing options that are, are most common. Like I said before, lease options are not seller financing. They're a different mechanism that allows for the option to buy later if you're able to at a certain point and you just separate that agreement out from from the lease in ohio a lot of landlords mess that up and, and conflate the two um so if if you're thinking about lease options be sure you understand those sort of things but the true two traditional ones are land contract and then you know selling and and holding a note and mortgage on the property right you're the you're the first lien holder if you sell your property to the buyer they take it take title to it and then they place the mortgage on that property as the new owner and uh pay on their mortgage the the downside of that is it immediately uh, requires that foreclosure, right? So if things don't go as planned month one or two, um, your option is to try to take back the property and get that mortgage paid through through foreclosure and sheriff sale uh, in Ohio or whatever jurisdiction you're in. You, you you know, that's the that's what you have to pursue on that one. So um, it's more familiar. So I think one advantage there is it's it's a little more familiar and, and people are more comfortable with things they they understand. Um, but that's obviously the, that's the second, you know, traditional seller financing, uh, setup is to just sell it outright to this new owner with, and, and rather than taking a pile of cash, you take a smaller pile and then hold a, hold a note, uh, and mortgage on the property. So I just want to mention that obviously we've, we've left that fun part out, but it's not as fun, but it's, it's a important one. Yeah. And I think with all these creative financings and correct me if I'm wrong, Paul and Adam, but I think the best part about that and what most buyers don't realize is there's not as many rules and regulations. Like when you're going through a bank, you can literally make the terms yourself um, like normal terms that you're not going to get from a bank that you can beat their interest rates. Or maybe, I mean, Tim Broth talked about that one at Paul Evans deal where it was a 50 year mortgage. I mean, who the hell does a 50 year mortgage? I mean, it's just things like that, that you can wouldn't be able to get from a bank, but you know, if you can negotiate it, you can make it happen. Yeah, you can have these uh, kind of moving interest rates, which, you know, can, depending on where, where the project is, can be really good for everybody, right? So it's like, hey, give me, you know, interest only for the first two years and make it a low interest rate because I'm trying to, you know, add value to this thing and not, it's not making any money. But when I get it rolling in two years, then I'll start paying you a, a better interest rate with principal, you know, and you can, you're never going to get that at the bank. Uh, so you can get, you can get as creative as you want. Um, if it's a commercial transaction, if it's a primary residence for somebody, you do have some RESPA concerns and other things, um, Dodd Frank and everything else. But if it's a if it's a commercial deal amongst two two folks for commercial purpose, then yeah, it's basically the wild west. You can do whatever you whatever you want. 
So if somebody wants to learn more about these tools and strategies that we've talked about, um, where would somebody possibly go to do something like that? I don't know. <laughs> no, just kidding. Yeah. So the, 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 the interesting thing, um, nowadays, and it kind of cuts both ways is like, there is so much free education on the internet, YouTube university, you could learn everything we've ever discussed on today's podcast. Uh, you can at least get your arms around it by going to YouTube. You, if you type in seller financing, there'll be, you know, 150 videos, 90 of which are from Pace Morby. If you type in, um, you know, how to acquire real estate, there's a billion videos on, on that, right? Uh, so YouTube is 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 the most efficient and by far the cheapest route. Uh, after that, there are tons of education groups. There's a ton of mentors. You're gonna you're gonna have to pay cheddar for that. And I don't know, you know, depending on where you are in the life cycle of a, an investor, whether or not that's your best use. But it can speed things up. Uh, but everything, regardless if you go the free route or the paid route. You got to put in the time yourself. Um, it doesn't just happen by association. It really takes a lot of learning and a lot of time and uh, and a lot of patience. So, hey, hey, Paul, if I wanted to get this information that we talked about today, and I don't like YouTube and I only use Facebook, and I wanted to spend ninety-seven dollars a month, <laughs> where? <laughs> Where can I first? First, you'd want, I get get some... you'd want to get your affiliate link from Chad in this podcast. Uh, <laughs> so he gets paid, um, but yeah. So we have a we have a a group we call the Deal Structure Crew. We help people understand these things. We help people with questions and ongoing deals. Um, we help them just kind of understand what options that they should look at. And we like people help. We like helping people close deals. So um, yeah, obviously we have a Facebook group. Reach out to me or Adam or Chad or Trent or any warm body that's in our group and someone will, someone will help you out. Yeah. And in the group, we, uh, like Paul said, we, we have, we, we have weekly call weekly calls about these sort of things or topics, um, regular posts, and then uh, have office hours where uh, any members can come on in and, and throw out a deal they want to talk about or a question they have. Um, those are the main things we do on that one. So, but like Paul said, it, um, just be curious and uh, you'll, you'll find it all over the place. Um, and, yep. and, and the more, and the more time you spend around it, you know, we, we had, to, we went through a, we showed up to a law school and classes and then have spent a lot of our career looking at this stuff and it takes time. I mean, really is the big thing is spend more time around it. It starts to kind of seep in and, and, it, and then, like I was saying earlier, you, you start to develop an understanding that allows you to see how these different mechanisms can fit into the deal you're looking at. And I think that's the biggest thing, but that it really does, like Paul said, comes with time and time time and effort um is a big thing yeah yeah cool trent do you have anything else that you can think of um no i think they i mean they answered all my questions about the different strategy you know seller financing strategies that you know, I was definitely curious about, because like I said, I've read a lot of different things on subject to and, you know, seller financing stuff. And I definitely think they're going to be useful tools moving forward, kind of in the market that we're waiting. Yeah. In right and every single one of these deals, there's risk to kind of both parties, right? Like there's no, there's no risk-free kind of transaction, whichever one you use, it could go south. If you do enough deals, you're going to get sued at some point. So just everybody that gets into this business, it's just part of the thing, right? Don't be a fraudster. Don't do 
don't do uh, rent to own or these lease options where you're taking advantage of people and giving them, you know, everybody wants to own a house. Everyone wants to have a nice place to raise their family and be proud and talk about, you know, having a home for their family. Don't take advantage of people. If you're not a total dick, I think, you know, it'll work out for you. So D-Bad. Let's end this one. Don't be a D. Our friend Tim, (laughs) our new friend, Tim Woodbridge came up with D-Bad. And that is a great... um, it's a great model to live by. It's a great term for every contract and interaction with anybody is uh, you should always bring that philosophy into it because um, it really holiday. does grease the wheels. Yeah. It's better for you and for everybody. Yeah. And it, important to remember in this holiday season as well, people that are working <laughs> that, you know, the roads aren't cleared off. That's okay. There's you know, a human that has to do that. There's, a human that has to, there's a human that has to leave their home and do that. There's a, there's a person that's left their family to sell you garbage at Target. D-bad, would you? Like, just don't. Not de-bag. <laughs> well, don't do that either. Don't de-bag. Don't de-bag. <laughs> Actually, I, I guess you don't want to say don't de-bag because that right. means you're double negative. Double negative. Yeah. Yeah. Trent got it. So de-bag. Yeah. That's as clear as I can make it. Don't, don't. Absolutely. Yeah, oh, yeah. Don't, don't talk to strangers. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, but like Paul said is, I mean, that really is a big part of, and we're lawyers, but some of the best advice we give is just more practical stuff like DBAD or, you know, see this as, you know, problem solving tip we gave earlier. I mean, that's, that's just a practical thing is like, that's really what it comes down to is looking at it with a positive perspective, putting in the work and, and not, and not seeing the other side as adversarial. Obviously you have interests that, that collide uh, on occasion and everything, but not seeing the other side as like, you know, your enemy can really help because they don't want to be mistreated by you, this a stranger. And, and like, you know, just having a better interaction early on, especially um, and, and working together with people goes a long way in getting deals closed and developing a reputation where your network is one that sees you as a person who solves problems and is good to work with that, that is invaluable really. Um, especially in real estate. Yeah, patience. Patience is patience is key. We had a we have a 14 unit we just put under contract. Adam kept me from giving this guy the bird many times because I was so frustrated. Even after he he sat on our contract, for uh, two, it's it's a doozy. He sat on our contract for two months. We offered ready to go. He made like one revision after two months, full months, and he sent it to me for a signature, and it was great. It was like, oh, there's nothing update here. This is great. We'll sign it. We didn't sign it that day. He sent it to us at like noon. And he wrote me at three o'clock. He's like, are we signing this today? We have a lot of interested parties. And I was like, Adam, let me tell this guy. Can you get me, can you get me the sign, executed I need, copy? I need <laughs> yeah, T-Bad. I need two P-A-D, but uh, yeah. he didn't let me. And we got it under contract and it'll get closed and it'll be a great deal. Um, it's just, you have to be patient and I'm not very patient, but uh, yeah. being patient, a lot of deals take, our only two multifamily deals, those took over, uh, one took well over 12 months to get actually wow. closed because it was COVID and stuff. So that got sticky, but it was also a nightmare. Um, the, other one was about, the other one was about six months. So everything takes a long time. So be patient. Yeah. Uh, ignore the, the stuff that tells you otherwise that you might see on social medias and other places. Um, yeah. But yeah. Anyway, I mean, it's over time. Yep. All deals are smooth. Yeah. <laughs> right. Never, never, never. Well, Gentlemen, I appreciate you guys coming on. All right, guys. Nah, guys. Stay warm. Yeah, I appreciate yeah. you guys coming on, taking the time out of your day. 
Really do. Really go do put some fire. It. Go put some wood in the fire, man. It's freezing in here. Exactly. You guys also have a good Christmas and a happy new year. And uh, nice you too, man. Yeah, Paul, Merry Christmas, guys. We'll talk to you later, man. Thanks, guys. Merry Bye, Christmas. Guys. Yeah. All right. That was a heck of a conversation. I know there was a lot to really take in right there because um, there was so much going on. But Trent, what are some key takeaways from that conversation with Paul and Adam that you know you can really take away from that? Yeah, Paul and Adam are super cool dudes. Um, just really appreciate them coming on the podcast. Um, basically, anything, you know, we, we talked about several different creative financing tools that you could use. Um, I really, this is one of those episodes that I would listen to twice because they do kind of lay out a blueprint or, you know, how you would approach uh, certain deals and, you know, what tools you would use, whether it be subject to or if it would be innovation, they kind of touch on. Um, you know, assigning or wholesaling. So uh, a lot to a lot to take in there, like you said. Um, I just thought the whole episode was really cool. Yep, I did too. And like you said, I don't think you could have said it any better, Paul. And I have very cool dudes. And I think that anybody who wants to learn more, I know Paul and Adam both put on a, you know, they have a Facebook group that we're in. It's $97 a month and it's the best money, you, you know, you can spend. I mean, I can't count the amount of times that I reached out to Paul with a question about something just because I'm a member of this group and he's helped, you know, answer it or direct me in the right path. And you get access to a lot of documents and contracts and I mean, things people would spend a lot of money for. I mean, it's $97 a month. I, like I, like I said in the podcast, you know, I can think of worse things that I spend $97 a month on. And of course you get access to Paul and Adam um, and they have little events and, uh, you know, meetups and things to, you know, meet up with them and, network we always talk about networking so i think that's crucial and i think the best way if you want to learn more about that or even if you have like a quick question for paul i know he's a super chill guy that's the best way to reach out to them is probably get on paul's instagram and to find him if you search paul vincent it'll probably come up but his exact um, instagram handle is pv.esq so it's paul vincent esquire pv.esq um, just send him a DM on there and I know he'll shoot something back to you. He's a super helpful guy. He wants to help people. That's why he does what he does. Um, so that being said, there was a lot to take in here. Like Trent said, I think this is something you should definitely listen to two or three times because you're going to probably pick up a different diamond or nugget, um, every time you listen to it. So, um, with that being said, we're wrapping up this little four week, um, podcast gift that we had for you viewers here next week. We're bringing on Phil Brooks. Um, is a fix and flipper um, out of the New York, Buffalo, New York area. But he's done deals um, across three different states in America. I know you don't know Phil as well as I do, um, but what is something you know that you're looking forward to with that conversation with Phil? Yeah, I think some of what I know about what Phil does, I think he um, is starting to get into multifamily and that you know is looking like it's his primary focus. So I'm excited to kind of unpack how he got into multifamily and what he's doing now to grow his portfolio. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so that being said, uh, thank you guys for joining us. We hope you join us next week again for another great episode with Phil Brooks. Mm-hmm.